Why don't you all bow with me and let's pray. Father God, we uh, indeed are grateful for a weekend like this where we can uh, remember and reflect uh, on the freedom that we have and specifically, Lord, those who have given their lives for our freedom. And God, we're grateful as Americans, as those who are born in this country for uh, what you have blessed us with and for those who have given their lives for our freedom. We do not take that lightly and we're grateful. But Lord, also on a weekend like this, at least myself, I make a link to uh, the one who sacrificed his life so that I might be eternally free uh, from all of my sin. And Lord, I'm obviously referring to your son, Jesus. And so I thank you, Lord, too, for his amazing sacrifice for us that enables us to even gather here as a church and in our other campuses and venues and to worship you and lift our voices to you and rub shoulders with each other. And then, Lord, now turn to your word. So God, in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bless and honor this time as we open up your book and talk about your truth and how it impacts our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. So I was sitting in an airport this week and I was waiting for a flight. And as I did, I received a text message that a, a dear friend and close brother in the Lord had been admitted to Mayo Hospital and it very well might be his time to head to his eternal home. And so I called my friend's daughter and I got an update. And then when I landed in Phoenix later that evening, I went to the hospital and spent some time with my friend and his wife. And it was a really, really rich time. Uh, we spent time in prayer. We read some scripture. We uh, encouraged each other. We even had some laughter together as we uh, remembered some key events over the last few years. And one of the events that we recalled was the very first time that I had met my friend more than half a decade ago. It was an amazing meeting. I, I met him at Mimi's where a lot of spiritual things happen here in Phoenix. And, and as we were meeting there at Mimi's, I said to him, you know, just tell me a little bit about your story. And he had spent all of his career in the military, actually had been a chaplain during Vietnam, and then had worked his way up the ranks all the way to major general, and he became all, head of all army chaplains, which is quite a career. And during 9-11, he was the head of all army chaplains here in the States, and he was in Wisconsin when the planes hit the Pentagon, and he drove all night. He couldn't fly because all the planes were grounded by then. He drove all night to the Pentagon, got there the next morning, and was actually helping dig people out of the rubble. He was that kind of guy. He retired a couple of years later. It was time in 2003. And then just a few years after that, he got diagnosed with a form of cancer that many of you are familiar with. You see the commercials. It's called mesothelioma. It's a cancer of the lining of the lungs. And he most likely got it from asbestos digging people out of the Pentagon. And the doctors were not very hopeful in the prognosis at all. In fact, as he tells the story, they immediately did surgery. They opened him up. They looked at what was inside, and they immediately, immediately sewed him back up and said to he and his wife, there's nothing we can do. You have about a year or two to live. And it's here where the story, his story, gets incredibly rich because as he tells it, it's hard to explain. He said, Jamie, you know, I'd been a Christian for most of my life. I would have considered myself a strong believer. I mean, I'm a chaplain and I'm a head of all army chaplains. And he said, but something happened between me and God when I got that news in which I laid down my life. 
I surrendered to God in a new and fresh way. He said, for the first time in my life, I went from being a strong believer to a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And, and I said to God that day, I don't care what happens in the future. My life is yours. You are mine. And I submit fully to whatever plan you have for me. It's amazing what happened next. For the next almost decade, every time he went back to Mayo Hospital, every time he went back to get tests done, the doctors said, we don't get it. The cancer's there. We can see it there. It's just not doing anything. And my friend would look at the doctors and say, I fully understand what's happening. God is holding it back just for now. That kind of like the parting of the Red Sea. You could see the waters. They're right there. But he's walking on dry ground. And my friend didn't waste any time. He started a ministry in his retirement during that time. You're going to love this, where he bought a boat, a big boat, like a 59-foot boat, and he moored it off uh, in Seattle there. And every week in the summer, he would take five couples, five pastoral couples, the ministry was called a pastoral call, and they would bring them out to Seattle for a week for retreat and rejuvenation. And the only rule, and you got to love this, is that you had to be a pastor of a church under 100 people, and you had to be the only one. Because he knew how lonely it was to pastor in a church like that. And he wanted to bless these men and women and their families. And for a few years, he did that until it was getting too difficult last summer. And my friend was in the hospital on Thursday battling this cancer. And his wife texted me on Friday after my visit Thursday night and said, GT is now in the arms of the Lord. And he passed away two days ago into heaven, into glory. And what a fitting passing on Memorial Day weekend. I got to tell you guys, that's what this series that we're in this spring here at our church is all about. Really my friend's story of not just believing in Jesus. I mean, many, many of us do that. But learning what it might mean to become a true follower of Jesus Christ. That's the journey of the gospel of John. Jesus spends the first four chapters trying to get people to understand that it's belief and belief in him that brings salvation. And then in chapters 5 and 6, everybody begins to doubt him. So Jesus turns up the heat in chapters 7 through 11 and says, okay, let's talk about following. You believe, that's great, but let's talk about what your life is going to look like from this point on what it looks like to lay down our lives before him in such a way that we are completely his and he is completely ours and learning what it means to take our faith into the deep end of the pool and begin to swim as if our lives depend on it. In a very real way, maybe this will help. What we're trying to do in this series that we're in right now is take some of us from the Christianity 101 level to the 201, 301, even 401 level in our faith. And to help us, we're following the pattern of the Gospel of John. So we're in John chapters 7 through 11, and we're looking at 10 key traits that Jesus himself gives us on what it means to be a follower of him. 10 things that if you and I can begin to incorporate into our spiritual DNA, into our spiritual lives, will help us become followers and even fully devoted followers. And last week, Neil walked us through the trait of sight. Uh, what a 
great story of the man who was healed by Jesus and said, I was blind, but now I see. And this week we continue in a similar vein as Jesus is going to talk to us about hearing. So sight last week and now hearing, simply put, the need for you and I to learn to hear from Jesus on a regular basis in order to become fully devoted followers of him. So I want to read the passage before us today. It's found in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. It's kind of long, but I, I feel led to read the entire passage. And as I do so often, I want us all to stand for the reading of the gospel. So Cactus, Mountain Valley, Chapel, and Venue, let's all as one congregation stand and Jesus is speaking here right after the healing of the man born blind. And now he changes the subject a little bit and talks to us about the need to hear him. John 10, verses 1 through 21. Follow along as I read. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs in some other way, he is a thief and robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and find, or go, go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am also the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd." For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And you may be seated. 
Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking here using a very simple word picture or what we call an allegory. And the reason I say it's very simple is because we teach this story to our kids in Sunday school. They will come out of Sunday school and they have drawn a picture of a sheep and, and a shepherd and, and, and Jesus off to the side and all that. And, and it's really not a complicated story. I, I, I struggle with the fact that they didn't get it initially and Jesus had to explain it to them because in that culture, it, it fit perfectly uh, within the world that they were in. Uh, this is an artist's rendering of what a sheep pen would have looked like back then. We have very solid historical knowledge of exactly what was going on because it hasn't changed even much today in the Middle East. Uh, they will build rock walls here made out of mud and, and clay to hold the rocks together. The, the walls would be about anywhere between three and six feet high depending on how many rocks they could find. And that would hold the sheep in the pen. And then you'll notice they would build a makeshift door uh, for that. But what you'll notice is that it doesn't actually have a, a, a door on it because the shepherd himself becomes the door. It's how they protect the sheep. The shepherd actually sleeps and eats and stands in the doorway there until he's ready to take the sheep out for more pasture. And when he does, he simply calls them and even calls some of them by name. Sheep can know their own name. And they recognize the voice of the shepherd and they come out. And that's Jesus' initial point in this is that you got this shepherd, you got a door, you got a sheep, and the shepherd calls the sheep. The sheep hear the shepherd and he leads them. Very, very simple uh, allegory going on here. But Jesus adds another dimension to it. He says, but once in a while, somebody wants to steal the sheep, so they jump over the wall, and they call to the sheep to try to get the sheep to follow them, but the sheep do not understand that voice. They only know the voice of the shepherd, and so they don't follow, but they flee. This is the word picture that Jesus is giving us here. And after giving this word picture, it says in verse 6 that they did not understand what he was saying to them. And so in verses 7 through 18, Jesus goes on to explain in very clear language what he is getting at. And he essentially says that he is both the door and the shepherd. He is the door and the shepherd. And this would collate really well with their understanding of sheep pens back then. Because as we've already seen, the shepherd becomes the door. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the door and the shepherd. And as the door, he says, people need to enter through me in order to have eternal life and even life here and now, life abundantly. And then he says in verses 11 and 14 and 15, that as the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep, which is obviously a clear allusion to the fact that he's going to atone for our sins by giving his life. And then he says, the sheep know me and they know my voice, he says in verse 16, and they follow me, that they hear him and they follow. And all of this is contrasted in verses 8 and 10, where Jesus says that before him there were thieves and robbers who tried to steal the sheep, but thankfully were not successful. Most commentators take this to mean the myriad of false messiahs that had come in and out of Israel for three or four hundred years before Jesus, the history documents. And then Jesus even mentions in verses 12 and 13 in this allegory that there are these hired hands who also tend to the sheep, but because they don't own the sheep like the shepherd does, they're not going to put themselves in harm's way to protect the sheep as the shepherd would. 
And again, most Bible experts take this to be referring to the Jewish religious leaders, the pastors of Jesus's day. It's an indictment upon them. They're not actually thieves and robbers like false messiahs would be, at least they're on the right side, but they're selfish. They're in it for their own gain. They're more concerned about themselves than they are the sheep. <laughs> what an indictment on the pastorate. They had lots of activity, very little sacrifice. That's what Jesus is saying about the religious leaders of his day. And so what a great allegory or word picture that Jesus gives us here. Don't miss it, gang. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. And he is the door as well to eternal life for the sheep. And who are the sheep? <laughs> you and me. All of humanity, really. And as sheep, his voice is constantly going out to them, to us. And our only job, we'll get more to this in a minute, is to hear him. To posture our lives in such a way that we're listening so that when we hear his voice, we begin to follow. And when we do, he promises to lead us. This is the simple, simple word picture allegory that Jesus is laying out here. And now that we understand it, the only question I have for us on this Memorial Day weekend is simply this. What does it mean for you and I today, right? I mean, we get it. Maybe you heard this in Sunday school when you were in first grade, but you, you, you get it. You understand that this is how Jesus wants to function in your life. Uh, but, but what do we walk away with today from this allegory? Two thoughts I want to leave you with. Two thoughts that at first glance, I promise you, are going to seem somewhat simple, maybe even to some of you overly simple. But when we park in front of them and spend a few minutes thinking and talking about their implications in light of Jesus' teaching here, they can become rather profound and maybe even life-altering for you and me. And the first thought that we glean from Jesus' teaching here is this, and that is present tense right now, Jesus beckons us to follow him by calling to us. This might seem so simple, even so vanilla to some of you here today, but hang on to every one of these words here because they're well chosen. Jesus beckons you and me to follow him each moment of each day. How? By calling to us. Here's what you need to know, guys. This is absolutely core to the allegory that Jesus gives us here. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus tells us that the real shepherd stands at the door of the sheep pen and calls his sheep by name, that's rich, and that the sheep hear his voice and then he leads them out. And then in verse 14, as Jesus is explaining the allegory, he says that his sheep know him and he knows them. It's the Greek word gnosko which doesn't mean head knowledge, like you just know a lot about the Bible, but it means that you know Jesus personally. Why is that important? So that you might know his voice and that when he calls to you, because that's the main method of how he wants to lead you, you hear him and you follow him. That's what he means by that. And then to be sure in verse 16, Jesus reveals that he has more sheep to go out and get. And seeing that this was spoken some 2,000 years ago, it's a clear allusion to you and me someday coming into the fold. But what's really important to note is in verse 16, how these future sheep get into the sheep pen. 
because Jesus tells us there's only one way, and he says, and I quote, they will hear my voice. That's it, gang. That's how they get into this pen. They will hear my voice. As Jesus calls us, we will recognize it is him, and we will follow. And so at the end of the day, what Jesus is laying out here is that it all depends on you and I hearing him. He promises to call. He promises to beckon us to himself. He promises to lead us when we respond. The only thing we have to do is to hear him. This is how it works. This is the very nature, don't miss this, of spiritual reality. That Jesus is constantly looking and calling, as Peter would eventually write in his epistle, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Jesus is constantly looking and calling, and his voice is constantly going out to this world and to those around us and to us. And the key is to hear his voice and allow him to lead us. And then as he leads us, he will show us the way to go in life. We will become lifelong learners and followers of him, not just believers. But as my friend I told you about earlier, we can become followers. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking, well, well, Jamie, of course. I know you said it's going to be simple, but this is overly simple. Of course, this is how it is. I mean, how else could it be? How else might people think it works? I'm glad you asked. I want to share with you a couple of things right now, a couple of ways, generally speaking, that people today tend to see the nature of spiritual reality. And this is going to be very important for you to tune into right now because I'm not sure many of us realize what's going on around us or even inside the walls of the church. Because the first way that I'm going to share with you that people tend to see spiritual reality is what I'm going to call the primarily secular way that's going on in the culture around us here in America. But then there's also a primarily religious way that many people tend to see spiritual reality. But they both have one thing in common, and that is that they both completely misunderstand John chapter 10 and what Jesus is laying out here. So the first way is the way that our world tends to see reality and even spiritual reality. And it goes something like this, and that is that our world says, figure it all out on your own, find your own path, and then do what you believe is right with the only rule being don't hurt anyone else in the process. Am I right? I mean, this is, I'm telling you, this is the way that our culture thinks about life in general and even spiritual life. Figure it out on your own, find your own path, carve your own way, and then do what you believe is right without hurting anyone else. I'm telling you, it's the mantra of the postmodern world. And it's so ingrained in everything around us that you might not even recognize it until we point it out. I mean, it's the message of the media, academia, culture, society, entertainment. It's even the simple way that your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors think. Again, kind of like swimming in dirty water. You don't even realize it because it's just around you, but it's just assumed by many people that this is the way things should be. 
that you define your own reality. It's the American way. You carve your own path. And as you do that, make sure you got yourself a good value system and a set of mores that you define for yourself. Again, the only rule being, don't ever adopt a value that would hurt another person because that would be rude. And what we simply need to see, guys, is that thinking like this, seeing the world and reality like this, takes any semblance of the biblical God and Jesus completely out of the picture. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not a bad start to develop your own value system and your own set of mores. It's not even a bad start to say, what do I think reality is about? But if that's where you end, if that doesn't just become the beginning, but also the end, and you never get to the biblical God or the biblical Jesus, then obviously you haven't understood what Jesus and the Bible is about. Because in this way of thinking, there is no Jesus who has a plan for your life. In this way of thinking, there isn't even a God who intervenes in your life with his good will for you, no matter what you might think is right. And gone is the idea that he just might be constantly calling to you each moment of each day and beckoning you to follow him and his ways. Please see, it's a totally different way of seeing the nature of reality, even spiritual reality, and it's all around us, tempting us to think like this as well. I mentioned earlier that I was traveling this week, and you know, when I travel, I, I do a lot more reading. Some of you do the same thing as well. I'm usually busy here with meetings and other things, but when I travel, I have more time. So I spent more time looking at news this week, and, and without even trying to do this, I just started to, to notice particular patterns in the news that I was reading that, that I think collate really well with this uh, secular view of reality and, and, and even spiritual reality. I was reading one article, it's just a human interest story on a Hollywood A-lister who's having her second baby. Doesn't that sound exciting? And, and I'm not gonna tell you who it is because it's not really a, 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 a positive illustration, but it's not super negative, it just is. And this Hollywood A-lister was being interviewed about her second baby and, and she said this, she said, I feel great. I love being pregnant. A lot of women don't feel this way because it's rather uncomfortable. It is painful, but I, I love being pregnant. And then she said this at one point in the interview. She says, I, I feel that the overall process of having a baby is an amazing one. I feel so productive creating a human being that I'm so excited to meet because I know that I have such a spiritual connection to them and I can't wait to meet the newest member of my family. And again, reading this, if you and I read this on a Wednesday morning while reading the paper or the news, it would seem very benign, somewhat innocuous, but reading it through the lens of what the Bible says, and Jesus says spiritual reality is to be about, I don't know about you, but I, I feel so sorry for somebody like this. I mean, let me ask you, when you had a kid, or men, when your wife had a kid, uh, did you see it as you creating a baby? I mean, is that how you saw it? I, I didn't. I was a believer in Jesus at that time, and I gave great thanks to God for his creation inside my wife's womb. I would not have said that I love this overall process. I feel so productive creating a human being. But, but that's how many people think. 
And then I, I don't even know, know what that she means by a spiritual connection that she has. Because what's missing here is any mention of God, any mention of truth, any mention obviously of Jesus. And so my question would be, what does a spiritual connection mean outside of all that? I'm sure there's an answer, but, but I'm not sure it's what the Bible would say. As I'm reading that article this week, and then I started reading another article about the other end of the spectrum. I read an article on retirement. Now, don't worry, I'm not thinking of doing that soon. But it was a great article uh, about uh, Merrill Lynch's recent study on retirement. And, and what caught me about this article, and some of you will love this, is that they've actually done empirical study. And like their stages of grief, there's actually stages people go through in retirement. And that, that interested me. And they call it the four stages of retirement leisure. Uh, the first stage happens about five years before you retire. And it's called winding down and gearing up. Uh, you're looking forward to retirement and you're kind of excited about it and you're anticipating what it could be and you're starting to get a, a, a glimpse uh, of the freedom that just might be around the corner. And then when you finally retire, they say you hit stage two. It's called the liberation and self-discovery stage. And it only goes on for about two years or less. But they've been able to show empirically that 78% of people who retire in the first two years finally feel like they have enough free time. And that 92% say that retirement has finally given them the freedom to do what they want to do. And you feel liberated. But then in years 3 through 15, so for the next 13 years, you go through stage 3 of retirement, and they call it the greater freedom and new choices stage, where they've been able to show that you develop a new identity and new feelings of happiness and contentment, and you just enjoy life. Of course, this is Merrill Lynch trying to get your money. But anyways, they, they, they're enjoying life during this time. But then, and I thought this actually made sense, is that after year 15 in retirement, I think you're now about like 75 or 80, even older, you go into stage four that they call the contentment and accommodation stage. And this is where you're, you're, you're bent on trying to maintain your health and maintain your independence and, and, and you tend to focus on that. And they said you even tend to reprioritize family and your commitment to them and to key relationships. So I read this article and I thought to myself, now bear with me guys here, I thought to myself, there is not anything in this article that I would disagree with. It, it actually kind of excited me. It was very positive about the different stages that people go with in retirement. The thing that I noticed was one glaring absence in their analysis of retirement. Do you know what that absence is? God and the entire spiritual life. And some of you are saying right now, oh, come on, Jamie. I mean, really, that, that's just the way our culture is. That's my point. My point is, is that Merrill Lynch can do an entire study on what retirement is going to look like until your death and not even mention God or the spiritual life. I work with people a lot, and I'm with many people when their bodies are stopping to work and they're dying, and I'm telling you, they're thinking about God. As many of us get older, as many of us realize that life is very temporal and not eternal in nature, we start to wonder, is there more? Is there something more than just getting money and having a good retirement and raising a few semi-good kids and having a bunch of friends and things like that? And we start to wonder to ourselves, is there more? Is this all there is to life? 
And in retirement, that should be the number one time that people are starting to think like that. I have been in nursing homes, and I'm telling you, scratch below the surface, they're thinking about their mortality. But there's no mention of that here at all. And again, some of you are going, well, Jamie, come on, chill out. That's just the way culture is. I get that. That's my point. You see, what we don't realize is that for the first 1,900 years in the western part of the world here, there was a spirituality, a biblical spirituality imbued in much of popular culture. This is going to seem weird to you, but in 1850 in Britain, when Charles Spurgeon would preach at the famous Metropolitan Tabernacle, the Monday morning headline would be what he talked about on Sunday morning. Can you imagine in the Arizona Republic, the headline meaning, here's what Jamie said yesterday. <laughs> I'm not saying that they should do that. I'm just saying that was the culture that they lived in back then. You and I live in a culture where when you go to work on Monday morning, it would be kind of weird if you said, hey, you know what my pastor was talking about yesterday? I mean, some of you do that and you're kind of bold, but the reality is, is that most of your friends would not be interested in that. Why? Because we pulled spirituality and he semblance of biblical spirituality almost completely out of culture. And the way that our culture thinks today, because they're going to fill it with something, is this. Figure it out all their own. Find your own path. Then do what you believe is right without hurting anyone else. And my simple point is recognize that around you, gang, because I think it influences us more than we might want to admit. And then while you're chewing on that, let's also note a second alternate way that many people tend to see spiritual reality. And this one, this is going to shock some of you, is alive and well in the church among many well-meaning Christians. And it goes like this. And that is that Jesus wants you to get with the program. And so as the great and good shepherd, he's going to drive you until you do and clobber you until you get it right. And you know, we laugh, and I laugh too when I wrote it like that. But there are many of you here today that are about ready to cry because we finally set it for what it is. I'm telling you, I, I hear this week in and week out. It's how many, many of you tend to see Jesus and his role in your life. I mean, here's the deal. You know that he wants you to follow him, and you know that he wants you to be good and to do his will. But we're fallen and we're so prone to mistakes. We're like sheep, the Bible says, who wander and go our own way. And so we tend to see Jesus, if you're at all honest with yourself, as one who is constantly disappointed in us, constantly frustrated with us, constantly waiting for us to get our act together and get with the program. And because he's so disappointed and so frustrated with us, we see him as one who stands behind the sheep, not in front of the sheep, calling us to himself, but behind the sheep, driving them and ready to whack them every time they mess up, which is quite often. And so before you know it, the Jesus that you view is a Jesus who is the taskmaster of your very soul. And as a quick side note, do you want to know how you can tell if you or somebody else has fallen into this mindset? Look at how they treat those around them. Whenever a spouse comes to me and says, my husband is this way or my spouse is this way and they're so hard on me and they're so hard on the kids, they don't even want to be around them anymore and they're this way at work and all that, I, I, I say, I get it, I get it. I can promise you that is how they see God. 
That if we talk to them about their theology, if we talk to them about who God is in their life, they see God as one who is tough and stern and disciplinary and awfully mad at them in this world on a regular basis. Not as Jesus says, one who weeps over the things happening in this world and like a mother hen longs to gather all to himself. They don't see it that way. That they see it as God who is stern and angry and vengeful and ready to clobber us because we just can't seem to get it right. And what you need to realize, guys, is that this is a vast departure from the way that Jesus describes things here in John chapter 10. Look again at verses 3 and 4 and see if you can pick it out. Jesus says, the sheep hear his, the shepherd's voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. So so notice, he does not drive us, he leads us. He, He doesn't drive us, he goes ahead of us and continually calls us. Or the great image of the paraclete, uh, the Holy Spirit, the comforter in John 16 is one who comes alongside you and puts his arm around you and says, Frank, I know you're a mess, (laughs) but let me help you. And let me lead you to greener pastures and let me lead you to still waters. This is the Jesus that loves you and wants you to follow him. And there's a big difference between him always being disappointed and frustrated in you and always ready to clobber you and one who beckons you to himself and calls you and hopes that you will hear him and choose him because he loves you and he wants to lead you. This is the nature of spiritual reality. This is what Jesus is really like. And one of the reasons, gang, that I feel so passionate about this is because as I've shared with you, I've been a Christian for 35 years this year And for the first 10 to 15 years of my Christianity, Kim will attest to this, I saw Jesus very differently than I do now. I really fell into that trap of seeing Jesus as one who was always frustrated, always disappointed, driving me, and it's how I treated others around me. I was very disciplined. I was a taskmaster in my job and with my church and with my kids and and even, sadly speaking, with Kim, I was constantly angry and frustrated. And it got so bad that at one point I had a wonderful senior pastor. I was an associate pastor, thankfully. And I had a wonderful senior pastor who one day said, look, here's the deal. Either you get in therapy or you're fired. And I didn't want to get fired, so I went to therapy. And in counseling, over a couple of years, seeing this wonderful, gentle Christian counselor who knew the Lord, he helped me discover that a part of my view of God was just so screwed up. I remember one day I came in, I've told you guys a story before, but I came in and, and, and I sat down with him and I just started to unload my week to him and, and, and he just sent so much anger in me and frustration and shame and guilt and all this stuff. And, and at one point he just said to me, he said, you know, have you ever thought of being gentle with yourself? And I didn't even know how to register that. I thought, what does that have to do with any of this? And then he knew that because I was seminary trained, he said, let me ask you a question. And this was a turning point for me. He says, is Jesus your savior a gentle savior? And because I knew the Bible, what did I have to answer? (laughs) I had to say yes, because Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. I mean, Jesus said the direct quote. So I said to him, yes. He said, so here's my question for you. 
if Jesus is a gentle savior and one who died to forgive all of your sin, and as Jeremiah says, you wake up every morning and his mercies are new every morning for you, then why are you so angry and hard on yourself? And guys, I had absolutely no answer. I was found out in my awful theology <laughs> on how I view God. And it didn't change overnight. It would take years for me to start to posture my life differently before Jesus and began by seeing him differently. Seeing him as the great shepherd who loves me, who, yeah, wants me to get things more right. He wants me to repent. He wants me to grow. He wants me to obey. All those things are still on the table. But the driving force behind that, now don't miss this, is that, can you go back to the point here? Is that Jesus then beckons us to follow him by calling to us. That's what I had to learn. And when I did, it made a huge difference in my spirituality. So two different prevailing views on the nature of spiritual reality, really three. One of them is alive and well in culture, and it takes Jesus's personal call and leading in our lives, and it takes it off the table 100% and replaces it with you're the master of your own destiny. I hope we don't fall into that one. But then there's the other one that's alive and well in the church, a bunch of angry, driven people who constantly, constantly see God as disappointed, angry, and frustrated even with us until we can finally get it right and we miss Jesus's call and his beckoning on our lives. I ask you, how do you see Jesus here today? The world system, <laughs> a harsh theology, or by John chapter 10? the Jesus who truly is. Maybe even for some of you, as Philip Yancey says, the Jesus you never knew, but that he wants you to come and know. And this leads me to the second implication that comes right from Jesus's words here. And we're almost completely out of time, but this acts as a good wrap up and really something for you to think about in application form. And it's this, and that is, as I've said already, our primary response, really gang, the only thing he wants from you is to hear him and to follow. See, here's why this is so rich. Many of you today, especially those of you who see Jesus as a taskmaster of your soul, here's how you function. You have a list this long in your mind of things that you know God wants you to get right. And let's be frank, the list is probably correct, amen? I mean, the list is probably things like stop being such an idiot at home, uh, stop looking at pornography, don't drink so much, stop lying at work, do I need to go on? Uh, stop, stop missing church like half the time, stop being so critical of your pastor, things like that are on the list. And I wouldn't disagree with any of those things. Those are all things that I think God wants you to get right. But in your current mode, this is how you function. You wake up every day and you say, okay, God, I know I'm a mess up. Nobody else knows because I'm really successful and I got a good 401k, but I know I'm a mess up. And so you know what I'm gonna do today, God? I'm gonna try my best to get it right. And in all your fleshly strength, you try to get it right. And as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? Because it doesn't work very well. And along comes Jesus, and here's what he does. This is really cool. He says, I get that list too. In fact, I made it for you. Those are things that are on the table. Those are things that I want to work on in your soul. But the only way you're going to get to even be able to work on those things is to have this as your daily number one agenda, and that is to wake up every day, open yourself up to him, and say, I'm yours. 
I'm listening. Where are you going to lead me today? See, he wants full abandonment. He, he wants you. He, he wants your heart and your mind submitted to him before you even touch the list. And as you do those things, then he says, <coughs> we can start to work on the list. And some of you are saying, Jamie, is this really the way it is? Again, very quickly, look at verses 3. Give me a click here. 4, 14, and 16 strung together in Jesus' words here. This should grab you because this is the point here. He says, the sheep hear his voice. They know his voice. My own know me. They will hear my voice. Do you guys see a pattern there or is it just me? The response that he's looking for is to hear him. Each moment of each day, that beckoning call that he has on your life to love him and to follow him, that's what he's looking for. In fact, I find irony in verse 20 here when the response of the snarky religious leaders is this, why do you listen to him? Isn't that ironic? If Jesus was being snarky back, he'd say, well, that's my point, you losers. I want them to listen to me because that's my whole point is that you all don't hear very well, but if you could just do that, you'd be firing on eight cylinders. Uh, very quickly, people ask me all the time, well, you know, how do we hear God? I mean, that, that's a big topic. And here's the good news, gang. We talk about that all the time around here. If you want to know how to hear God, continue to come to Scottsdale Bible Church because this is what I have as a theme in my preaching all the time. But very quick primer to leave you on because somebody said last night this was really helpful for her. Uh, the, the quick down and dirty theology and how we hear God is that the Bible says there are at least six ways that we hear God in our lives. We hear him through his word, obviously, to us, which is why we need to read the Bible, understand the Bible, hear the Bible preached because he speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his Holy Spirit who the Bible promises to live in those of us who believe. And God says through a still, small voice, he will speak to us. He will nudge our spirit on a regular basis. And then he speaks to us through creation. Uh, the Bible says that the heavens declare the glories of God. They declare things to us. And some of us feel very close to God in creation. Our spirits feel open to him when we're on a hike or viewing the Grand Tetons or doing whatever we might do. It's a way God speaks to us. The Bible says he speaks to us in our conscience. Romans 2 says that our conscience defends, even accuses us, and that God is in all of that. He speaks to us through others. One of my favorite verses is in uh, 2 Samuel where it says, And Nathan said to David, Thus saith the Lord. One of my favorite sermons was a sermon that was entitled, Everybody Needs a Nathan. Every one of us need a few people in our lives that we feel know God and at times can be his mouthpiece to us. And then God speaks to us even in circumstances. Did you know that? Romans 8 verse 28 says that we know that God causes, causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. One of the last words that my friend said to me in the hospital Thursday night was when I, I, I said to him, how you doing? And he could barely speak. He was struggling with his breathing. And he said to me, God has a plan and I submit to his plan. Even in his circumstances, he saw the movement of God, the plan of God in his life. He speaks to us, even in our circumstances. And so here's what I want you to think of the rest of your Memorial Day weekend, because it's going to be a great weekend, I think, for many of us. You get to relax. You hopefully don't have to work tomorrow. Some of you do, but most of you don't. 
And uh, I just encourage you to give thought to the nature of your spiritual reality. How do you see God? How do you see Jesus? Uh, Have you fallen into the world system that almost takes him completely off the table because you just want to fit into everybody around you? Or maybe have you fallen prey to one or more of the messed up spiritual realities that we have inside the church that tends to see God in a way that doesn't collate well with the Bible? Or are you willing to see him and see his son Jesus as he really is, the good shepherd, the door himself that can give you eternal life, who calls you to himself every day if we will but listen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this weekend, as I said earlier, in which we can celebrate the freedom and the joy that we have in this country. And that, Lord, even to have a discussion like we've had today to talk about the spiritual freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And God, we really do live in a world that's very different than the world that some of us grew up in. And Lord, that's hard for us. But as Jesus says, they can do whatever they want to the body, but they can never touch the soul. And so God, as we strengthen the things of the soul today, would you strengthen us as well? We love you. We want to know you as you know us. We want to see you rightly. We want to find our sufficiency and our satisfaction in you. In short, Lord, we want to follow. Help us to do so. Help us to hear you, I pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, and we all say together, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great weekend.